0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. We are continuing our study this morning in 1 John. We're looking at this very final section that's verse 13 through 21. That constitutes the conclusion of the epistle. Now, the closing context lists seven things that believers know. It starts out, we know we have eternal life, and he goes down and lists the different things we know. Now, last week we looked at the subject of prayer, kind of spent the whole time dealing with these verses, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, that's the general principle, that if we ask anything according to the will of God, He hears us and He grants our requests. Now, in verses 16 and 17, John amplifies the theme of prayer by applying the general statements of 14 and 15 to the particular need of prayer for believers who fall into sin. Let's look at verse 16. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray for that. Now, I'm using the Christian Standard Bible this morning because I believe it gives an accurate translation of these verses, especially verse 18. We'll get to that in a moment here. But let me just say this morning, it's texts like this one that make you wish you did topical messages. Okay? Okay. Because you just skip this. You don't even do it. You you know, you don't have to mess with it. When you're doing verse by verse, you know what's even funny on commentaries? If you get a verse by verse commentary, some texts like this, they just skip the verses. I don't know if that's smart or not, you know what I mean? (laughs) This text is difficult, okay? And you're going to see some of the difficulty. I'm going to share with you, you know, some of these complexities that are in here. But before we look at that, I want us to see the simple exhortation that this verse gives. Then we'll dig into the complexities. This verse emphasizes our need to pray for fellow Christians if they get involved in sin. Notice what John said earlier. Now this is the command. Now this is his command. That we believe in the name of the Son of God, Yeshua the Christ, and love one another as He gave us command. John over and over talks about the need for us to love one another. Listen, prayer for a sinning Christian is a concrete demonstration of of love for that brother or sister. We're to help those in the Christian community who fall into sin. Galatians 6, one says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, John would say, you who abide in Christ, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. You who are spiritual, you who are abiding in Christ, restore that person. One way we can help, for sure, is to pray for them. And in 1 Timothy 2.1, he says, First of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks, those are all words for prayer, be made for everyone. We're supposed to be praying for one another. Notice what James says about a sinning believer in the end of his book. He says, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, And someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How would you like to do this for a brother? To save their soul from death? Now, the word soul there is the Greek word souke. What does souke mean? Life. Life. Okay? And I don't know why they translated this soul. Save his life from death. Wouldn't that be encouraging? To see somebody going down the wrong path and straighten him out. Alright, well in our text today, he's talking about prayer. He says, if you see a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, then ask. Ask who? Ask God. Pray. And then he said he should pray. Now, what I want you to notice here is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, if you see a brother in sin, go tell the pastor. It doesn't say that. Oh, no, it doesn't. No, it does not. It's not even in the white spaces, okay? It doesn't say, go call a bunch of your friends and ask them to pray for them. See, we use prayer requests as a means of gossip. But we say, pray, and that makes it spiritual, okay? It doesn't say, judge them for their sin, shun them, condemn them. It says, pray for them. I mean, this is a this is love, people. We're supposed to love one another. If you see somebody in sin, sin is damaging. If we love them, we don't want them to go into sin, so we pray for them. If you can talk to them, do that, but pray first. Then if you're close enough to them to talk, if you're not close enough to them, don't go sticking your nose in their business. They're not going to appreciate that, okay? If you don't have some kind of connection there, but you should have some kind of connection there. That's the whole thing. All right. So, if you don't get anything else out of this, we're to pray for one another when we see a brother in sin. Now, that said, let's break down this if we can and try to understand exactly what he's saying here. As you look at verse 16, what questions come to your mind? A couple questions I have would be sin that doesn't lead to death? What is that? It's a sin and it doesn't lead to death. And here's a question. If the believer's sin doesn't lead to death, right, why does God need to give life to him? Do you see that? I'm reading this and I'm saying, a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should ask God and God will give him life. I'm like, why do you need to give him life if the sin doesn't lead to death? Well, yeah, here's the thing. Are death and life in this text speaking of spiritual death or physical death? Another question we've got to try to figure out, okay? And then we have to ask this question what is the sin that leads to death? Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's look at this text and see if we can answer some of these questions, all right? But that's what we need to do when we read a text. We need to just look at the text and then start, okay, what's it saying? What's it not saying? Try to answer some questions. That really stumped me, though. I'm like, he, he's sinning a sin that doesn't lead to death. So ask God, and God will give him life. I'm like, why? Why? He says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin. Now, if here's a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action, maybe you will and maybe you won't see someone like this. But if you do see someone like this, pray for them. Now, the text says, if you see a fellow believer, that would indicate the sin is observable. <laughs> that would indicate some kind of it's not some internal attitude, you know, that you're trying to convict them for because you don't know what's going on inside. This is public or visible sin. You see it. You see a fellow believer. And I like the way they translate this, you know, the words brother here, they translate a fellow believer. That's what he's talking about. All right? And it's a sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, in this text, John draws a distinction between sins that don't lead to death and sins that do lead to death. What are these sins? And what does John mean by death? He's talking physical death. He's talking spiritual death. Can we tell from the context? The subject here is a fellow believer who is committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. Right? You with me so far? You got that? Believers, he's sinning. But it's not a sin that leads to death. So why? what kind of life is God going to give him? I mean, he's obviously alive, right? God will give him life. got That's got to make you scratch your head, people. Alright? If the sin he's committing doesn't lead to death, why does he need life? If he had committed a sin that led to death, then he would need life. But they're not to pray for someone who commits a sin that leads to death. Three times in this text, we have the phrase, lead to death, which in the Greek is prosthenaton. Now, besides our text, there's only one other place in the New Testament where the expression prosthenaton is found, and that's in John 11.4. I'm sure you be familiar with this. When Yeshua heard it, he said, the sickness is not to end in death. Talking about Lazarus but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now here, Yeshua responds to the news about the sickness of His friend Lazarus. And Yeshua said His sickness was not prosthanaton. In the sense that it, He did die, but in the sense that ultimate outcome was not going to be physical death because the Lord raised Him back to life. So John is the only New Testament writer to use prosthanaton. And when he used it in the Gospel, it was referring to physical death. But if the believer's sin was not prostanaton, why do you need to be given life? And why would a believer need to be given life? They already have life. He's obviously physically alive because he's sinning. And he obviously has spiritual life because he's a believer. Okay? Look what John said earlier in this chapter, 5, 11, and 12. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. Alright? So God's going to give him life, our text says. And will give here is a future verb. This would lead me to believe that the life that is given to the believer is physical life. Because, again, we already said He has He has spiritual life. He has eternal life. And it's a future verb because he's still alive now, but he's going to die because of this sin, but God could give him life. Okay, are you totally confused yet? Good. (laughs) All right, we'll come back and look at this in a minute to, to try to see what John means by the idea of sin that leads to death. Now, apparently John's readers knew what this sin was. Because he doesn't explain it. But it's not so clear to us. Alright, there's there's a lot of views on what this means. I'm going to give you four of the main views, and we'll go from there. Number one view, or I'm just, no, not number one in rank, just the one I'm giving you number one first, okay? Four views, put them in any order you want. Is the mortal sin view. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there's two categories of sin. Anybody know this? Anybody Roman, got a Roman Catholic background? Okay. They divide sins into... Venial sins, not so bad. They can be forgiven. And then mortal sins, really bad. You can't be forgiven, okay? So they would say the sin unto death is a specific sin that comes under the category of mortal sin, all right? Now, Tertullian taught something similar to this. He taught this. He taught that some sins, and he listed them, such as murder, idolatry, fraud. I was like, fraud? How do you get that one in there? Denial of Christ, blasphemy, adultery, and fornication could not be committed by true Christians. And that God would not forgive these sins. So he just had a list. Here's some sins. Now, okay, I, I understand you know, some of these, murder, idolatry, but fraud? I'm like, how do you determine that? The problem with this view is the Bible doesn't make these distinctions, okay? If Tertullian's lists were applied to those in the Bible, guess who wouldn't be saved? Uh, David, Solomon, Peter, Paul—they'd all perish, okay? Because they were murderers, they were adulterers, they were frauds, you know. And so, no, that doesn't fit at all. Okay, another view that I can kind of understand where it comes from: blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You all heard of that, right? I've had I've had asked I've been asked by a lot of different people. What is this? Because people are worried. Did I do this? Because look at the text, all right? Therefore I tell you, people, will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, I know that countless numbers of people read this and they think, did I do this? Yeshua clearly states, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, the contrasting preposition there, but, is day in the Greek. And the use of the word day here is showing that there's a contrast. There's an exception to the previous statement. The previous statement is, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but... So all sins are forgivable, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. This is why the word but is there, to show there's a qualification, an exception to the first statement. So we really need to understand what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, so we make sure we didn't do it, right? Blasphemy is a compound word from two Greek words that mean to speak and to hurt, hurtful speech. It describes the act of speaking of someone in a hurtful way. Blasphemy is the opposite of praise and worship. Praise is to speak good of someone. Worship is to assign worth to someone. Blasphemy is to speak evil and to attempt to take worth away from the one deserving of such. So blasphemy is speaking evil against God. It's a serious sin. Now in context of this passage in Matthew here, the scribes had been given all the evidence. They'd seen the miracles of Christ. They had heard His teaching, and they still rejected Him. They just accused Him of performing miracles by the power of Satan. They witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit, and they said, that's Satan. They pointed to the Holy Spirit, and they said, unholy, unclean. They rejected the very one, Yeshua, in whom it was necessary to believe in order to receive forgiveness. And as a result, there remained no possibility of forgiveness. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit working through Yeshua, doing the miracles, doing the teaching, and attributing it to Satan. They saw Him do miracles. They rejected it. Now, I think Yeshua would have to be here in His earthly ministry to literally commit this sin. It is a definite sin related to a historical situation. When our Lord was here on the earth, as the God-man. He would do things under the power of the Spirit and they'd say, no, Satan. So I think this is something we don't have to worry about. It's a, something historical in this context. Yeshua had to be here personally to have this happen, so we can skip that one. All right. So we've got the mortal sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The third one is is similar to the first one. It's physical death for heinous sins. In other words, if you sin bad enough, God will kill you. Now this approach is to explain it in terms of Old Covenant distinction between sins committed unintentionally and sins committed defiantly. And the Bible makes a big distinction there. When you committed a sin defiantly, you were judged for that. Under the Old Covenant, sinners who repudiated that covenant, they died physically. Because their repudiation represented a major rejection of Yeshua's authority. The writer to the Hebrews warned his readers that repudiation of the new covenant will result in an inevitable, severe judgment. Now, the concept of sin resulting in physical death occurs occasionally in the Tanakh. We see this, for example, in Numbers 18.22. So, the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear sin and die. Don't come near this. If you do, you're going to die. Okay? We see the same thing in Deuteronomy 22.26. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense, punishable by death. For this case is like that of the man attacking and murdering his neighbor. So, you don't give her the death penalty because she didn't deserve it here. okay? So there is a death penalty. Sin resulting in physical death also occurs in the Jewish intertestamental literature. Jubilees 21 says, Beware lest thou should walk in their ways and tread in their paths and sin a sin unto death before the Most High God. We see the sin unto death in Jubilees 26, 34, 33, 13, and 18. In all these instances, the concept involves physical death as a consequence of sin. Sin resulting in sickness or death is also mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Okay? Acts chapter 5. Ananias, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Drop down to verse 5, it says, when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. Oh, would the church be a different place if this happened today? Right? You get called out for lying, boom, you drop down dead. Okay, that I would, I would put a damper on lying, okay? Wouldn't it really? Ananias and Sapphira were both Slain in the Spirit, okay, for lying. They sinned and they died. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 29, 30. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Talking about the Lord's Supper here. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Now, falling asleep there doesn't mean they are taking a nap. They're dead, Okay. There's a progression. You're sick, you're ill, you're dead. All right? So, Paul here mentions some who had died because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So, the sin that leads to death could be teaching that some sins bring God's swift judgment and results in the premature physical death of the sinner, while other sins do not. All right? Now, this view takes brother in the normal sense. But it has to understand life and death as physical life and death, not spiritual. Now remember, Yeshua's statement about Lazarus in John eleven four. This sickness does not lead to death. Refers to physical death. Now, in the case of sin leading to premature physical death, is John saying, "Don't even bother to pray for them"? They're sinning. And if they keep it up, they're going to die, but don't even bother praying for them. Think about that for a minute. We'll come back there. He says, I'm not saying you should pray about that. Here's my question How do we know if a brother or sister in their sin have gone too far that we should stop praying for them? Does that make any sense? Would you ever, do you think you'd ever be at a point with a brother or sister? You say, I'm not even going to pray for them anymore. They're too messed up. Okay, so this is getting complicated, right? (laughs) Okay, so we got the mortal sin view, we got the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we got physical death for heinous sin, and finally, spiritual death for certain sins. This view says that when the author speaks of sin that leads to death, he has the sin of the secessionists in mind. They are people who deny that Yeshua is the Christ come in the flesh. They also deny the significance of His atoning work. This would mean that they place themselves outside the sphere of forgiveness and their sin becomes sins leading to death. A sin that leads to death. Now, if we understand the sin that leads to death as referring to spiritual death, then it seems clear that the author could not have envisioned believers committing such a sin. We just talked about this in verse 13. Believers can't do this. Okay, They have eternal life. Now, the petitioner in 5.16 is instructed to pray for the fellow member of the community who commits sin not leading to death. That doesn't lead to death. That's what we're supposed to pray for. But if it leads to death, we're not supposed to pray for it. Now, many interpreters assume that a member of the Christian community, likewise, could commit the sin that leads to death. But John doesn't say that. He doesn't hint that the believer could commit a sin unto death. He said the believer is committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. Then he goes, there is a sin that leads to death. That's a different thing. I'm not ta- I Don't even pray about that. Don't even worry about that. one. See, within the framework of Johannian thought, believers possess eternal life. We got that, right? While unbelievers remain in darkness, that is spiritual death. Thus, the sin leading to death is a sin committed not by believers, but only by unbelievers. This sin unto death here is the denial of the saving truth through the incarnation of Yeshua the Christ and the salvation that He has procured. God will give him life, He says, to those that commit a sin that doesn't lead to death. So why does John say God will give them life when they didn't commit the sin that leads to death? See, if believers already have life, why do they need God to give them life for a sin they committed? Now, as I said, this is a very complicated text. I'm taking a hybrid view here. I think that this text is dealing with view number three, physical death for heinous sins and spiritual death for certain sins. I think that John is saying that believers can commit certain sins and if they keep it up enough, God will kill them. And we're supposed to pray for them. Okay, We're supposed to pray for those people. That's why we pray for them. God, turn them around. God, save their life. All right? I see what John's saying here very similar to what James says. So let's look at James again. We read this text earlier. He says, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now throughout the whole letter of James, he's exhorted believers how to save their lives from the physical damage that sin brings. That's James' whole point. Save your life. Save your life. It's very similar to what John calls abiding in Christ. He's just saying, he's talking about the physical ramifications ramifications of this. You'll die if you don't live right. And now he adds at the end, not only can they save their own lives by living right, he tells them that they can be spiritual lifeguards and help somebody else out. He says, strays from the truth. A brother or a sister. Again, Christians. The word strays here is the Greek word planao, which we got our planet. All right? It means to roam. To roam from safety, from truth or virtue. To go astray, to err, to wander, to be out of the way. He says they stray from the truth. Here he's speaking of departure from the truth set forth in the Word of God. Whether it be doctrinal or practical, truth is not just something to be believed, it's something to be obeyed. All right, these believers, they're straying from the truth. He says, He's saying that there's every possibility that the members of the family of God can and will stray. Are you familiar with the hymn, with the line, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, Prone to leave the God I love? I remember the first time singing that hymn that it actually hit me what I was saying. And I realized I am prone to wander. The words became so real to me. You know, there's a tendency on the part of us to stay away from, to stray away from the truth. There's, You know, we just have that propensity within us. And I think we need to understand this because there are many believers who don't understand this. Many think that if someone's a true Christian, they'll always be true, they'll always stay with the faith. That's not biblical. Obedience in the Christian life is not automatic and it's not guaranteed. Believe me, I wish obedience was autopilot. Turn it on. And that's how John MacArthur teaches. If you are born again, automatically you'll be righteous. And I'm telling you, then I don't know if I'm saved or not. Because I'll tell you, it's not automatic for me. Okay? MacArthur said, it's like breathing. Really? So I don't have to work at it then. I don't, I don't, I sleep and breathe. I don't even think about it. Okay? But righteousness is a little different. I have to constantly be thinking and constantly making corrections along the way to do what I need to do because I am prone to wander. And so he says, he's just telling us about truth. If you see a brother or sister, they're wandering from the truth. Someone turns him back. Now, the King James Version says, and one converts him. It's not talking about evangelism here. He's talking about turning around a straying believer. Now, who is this? Well, it's someone. It's anyone who's aware of the situation. Okay? He says, someone turns him back. It's not an exhortation to carry out this duty. It rather assumes that the task will just be done because you see a need. When we see a brother or sister falling into sin, our responsibility is to go to them, to try to pick them up, to try to encourage them, to try to bring them back to the truth. Because sin is damaging. The phrase that James uses here, sozen in the Greek, is the standard, the normal way of saying to save the life. Again, I said, I don't know why they translated suke here as soul. Sin is very serious, and it can lead to physical death. To turn someone from sin to obedience, He says you can save their life from death, and you can cover a multitude of sins. Now those two actions, salvation from death and forgiveness of sins, are actions of God. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that, right? God can save a soul from death. Only God can forgive sins. And yet we are given the privilege of being co-laborers with God when we get involved in this process. We're praying that God would turn them around, Then we go to them and try to encourage them. Don't go that way. And I'll tell you the truth from a pastor and from being involved in Christianity for a long time, most people don't listen to you. Most people don't understand the damage sin brings until it brings it. And some people have to get really slammed into the dirt to wake up and realize, ah, that's not the good way to go. And sometimes it's just totally destructive and just ruins their life. And it's just, believer, count on the fact that sin is destructive. That's why God doesn't want us doing it. Not because He's trying to hold back some pleasure from us or anything like that. He cares about us. He loves us. And that's not a good way to go. All right, so James closes this epistle by saying that not only are we to walk in obedience, be doers of the Word, he says, and save our own lives from damage, we're also to notice how others are doing. And when someone errs from the truth, we're to go after them. Turn them around. John says, pray for them. James says, go after them. Turn them around. So I think this is what John is talking about when he says God will give them life to those who committed sin that doesn't lead to death. See, he's trying to make a distinction. There's two different categories of sin. The believers can't commit the one that does lead to death. So he's defining this. That's the sin that doesn't lead to death. They're a believer. They're not committing that other sin. But when you see them going down the road that's going to cause destruction, pray for them. They can sin to the point where God will take their physical life. And you say, how do we know this? We don't. But you see, you see people die all the time and you wonder, was it just time? Well, it was time if they went, but... Was there other circumstances involved? You know? I don't know. But the Bible clearly says that you can sin to the point where God will kill you. He says, there's a sin that leads to death. I'm not even saying you should pray for that. Don't even worry about that. Don't even pray about that. <laughs> Listen, this is something only an unbeliever can commit. It's a sin of rejecting Christ. Christ. And I think we can be sure of that translation because of what John says in verse 18. We're just going to look at the first part of this and we'll come back and pick it up next week and go into the rest of it. But he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. He says, we know. How do they know? Again, all about knows in this closing section. Here's things we know. Here's things we know. You know why he says they know this? Because he already taught them this. Remember back in 3.9, he says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now the Greek in 5.18 and 3.9 is exactly the same. It's pas ha ganao, ek ha theos hamartano. Exactly both places, alright? Now since it's been ten months since we studied 3.9, let me refresh your memory, okay, on what this means. I'm using the Christian Standard Bible because they translate this verse correctly. The ESV says this. Oh, there's the Greek in that. Alright, for you who wanted to know. Alright, got that? Pasha ganao, ek ha theos hamartano. Alright, the ESV says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, there is a big difference between does not sin and does not keep on sinning would you agree so what translation is right well we could just pick one that we like the best right i mean there's a lot of them out there that's what you do just find one that says what you want to and you're good right i would pick the esv doesn't keep on sinning that makes it that sounds better than just you don't sin okay big difference so we could, like I said, we could pick one we like, or we could be Bereans, and we could study it out and try to figure out what does this really mean here. Now, because the Greek uses the present tense, it is asserted that this tense necessitates a translation like everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Writers will say, well, this present tense should be translated this way. No, that would mean that those born of God may sin somewhat. How much is never specified but they may not sin regularly or persistently. Okay, so, he doesn't keep on sinning. You sin, but you don't keep on. I stop for a little while, then I go back to it. I don't know what keeping on means, okay? But on all grounds, listen, whether linguistically or exegetically, the approach is indefensible. It's been pointed out by more than one competent Greek scholar that the appeal to the present tense invites intense suspicion. No other text can be cited where the Greek present tense, unaided by qualifying words, can carry this kind of significance. If you want more detail on this, go back to 3.9, where we taught on this. I went into much more detail, and that's why I'm not going to cover it all, you know, defending this, or trying to disprove this present tense theory here. Zane Hodges writes this. Zane taught New Testament Greek at Dallas for 27 years. He was a personal friend. He knew the language. He said, There is no doubt that in inappropriate context, the Greek present tense can have a present progressive force like he is sinning. But the introduction of ideas like continue to sin or go on doing it require more than the Greek tense to make them intelligible. For this purpose, there were Greek words available, words actually used in the New Testament. In other words, imagine that! He could have used a word that meant continually. For example... Luke 24, 53, and we're continually in the temple blessing God. Here, continually is the Greek word diapantos. The, the same word is used in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. So, guess what? If he wanted to say continually sin, he could have used one of those words. Hodge goes on to say the Greek present tense did not by itself convey the idea of continual or habitual or of a practice. If John wanted to say no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, he would have used the available Greek words to make his point. No first century Greek reader or hearer was likely to get a meaning like practice sin. Smalley also unmasks this misuse of the present tense when he points out that 5.16 uses the present tense to describe specific sinful acts, not chronic transgression. The present tense cannot bear the weight that the translation keeps on sinning places on it. Alright, now that we know that we have a correct translation, that the the Christian Standard Bible has translated this correctly, the King James translated it correctly also, we know that John says... Everyone who's been born of God does not sin. So, this is saying that if you're born of God, you don't sin. So, let me ask you something. Do you sin? Let me ask your wife, your spouse. Okay? And your spouse is going to say, "Uh, yeah, they do. Okay? Then, according to this verse, you're not born again. How does that make you feel? Don't go questioning your salvation just yet. Let's see if we can straighten this out, okay? That's what it says. Everyone born of God does not sin. And you're like, "Mm, boy, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Okay. Pragmatically, we have to question what is being said here because we all sin, right? So you read that and you go, something's wrong with me. Or something's wrong with my interpretation here because I still sin, and it says you're not going to sin. Now this verse is not only a problem pragmatically, it's a problem doctrinally. Because it doesn't fit with the primary rule of hermeneutics. What's the primary rule of hermeneutics? The analogy of faith, which means Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, is there anywhere in Scripture that says that We sin? See, the analogy of faith here, Scripture interprets Scripture, it means that no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what's clearly taught at other places in Scripture. That makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want conflict. The Bible says this over here and this over here. No. Does Scripture anywhere teach believers sin? Yes, it does. It continually calls believers to stop sinning. What John wrote earlier seems to contradict what he writes here. John wrote... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Okay, so here he says that if we say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But our text says everyone who's been born of God does not sin. So which is it? Well, look at what he says in 1 John 2, one. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, (laughs) I'm glad there's a but there because if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Here Christians are told not to sin, but if they do, they have an advocate with the Father. So which is it? Do Christians sin or do they not sin because they're born of God? When we read 1 John 5.18 in the Christian Standard Bible or in the King James, we're faced with what seems like a blatant contradiction. And that's why people stuck in practicing or continually sin or they do something because they can't have it say what it says. Does Scripture contradict itself? No. So there must be a way to reconcile these verses. But the means of reconciliation is far from agreed upon. Okay? Now, ten months ago, I gave you eight different views of 1 John 3.9. What's exactly i just showed you says the same thing our text these eight views where i'm just going to run through them quickly habitual sin view which means that's what that's how you should translate you don't habitually sin you sin you just don't habitually sin the sinless perfection view that means you can get to a point in your life where you're sinlessly perfect and you don't sin anymore i hope you have a problem with that the not real view means john's not talking about reality here he's talking about an ideal situation Okay, this is, not re- this is not reality. The absolute view means, yep, you just absolutely don't sin anymore. That's it, you get there. The projected eschatological reality view, that means in the future when Christ comes we won't sin anymore. Okay, so they look at it that way. The new nature, old nature. Your new nature doesn't sin, your old nature sins. I kind of like that one. I just say, honey, that wasn't me, that's the old guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, what the heck, you know? And you turn around and it's like, okay, it's me, I'm back again. (laughs) Wow, this is like an excuse to just do whatever you want to do, right? The contradiction view. This view says there's a contradiction in Scripture. I don't like that view either, okay? And then the specific sin view. Now, do you remember which view I said was the most popular? There's a clue here from the Bible translations. The habitual sin view. This is also the predominant view among those who hold to lordship theology because it supports their teaching. See, they argue that 3, nine and 5.18 are saying that those born of God cannot keep on sinning. But as we've seen, the present tense cannot bear the weight that the translation keeps on sinning places on it. So you can sin some or for a while, but you can't keep on. Try to get someone to define that for you. Seriously. Get it, get it defined. You know, people will say, well, if you're a Christian, you'll live obediently. And I always say, how much? 100%? Well, no, no one's 100 How much? Give me a number. I mean, uh, this is serious. We're talking about life here. I want to know the number. 80% good enough? Because if, if obedience is necessary, how much is a, How much of it, it's, oh, you go down that rabbit hole, you'll never get out, okay? And just, that's it. just ask people who teach you that, who say that to you. To me, the only view that makes sense is the specific sin view. John is speaking not of sin in general. He's speaking of a specific sin when he says those born of God do not sin. What is that sin? Well, if we go back to the fourth gospel and look at how John, how Yeshua uses the word sin, I think it'll help us understand what John means in our text. Let's look at a couple uses of this. In John 9, 1 and 2, he says, He passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, He's born blind. So their assumption is something's wrong with you, you messed up. Okay? I mean, there's still people today that hold this view. They see you, oh, you must be sinning because you're having physical problems. Not necessarily. Okay? Well, Yeshua responded to their question this way He answered, It was not this man that, it was not that this man sinned or his parents that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, was Yeshua saying, that the son and his parents had never sinned? But that's what he says. Yeshua answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So they never sinned? No. He is saying that the blindness was not due to a specific sin. They did. At the end of the chapter, Yeshua said to certain of the Pharisees, He said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say, we see, your guilt remains. The word translated guilt there is hamartia. It means sin. Was Yeshua saying that if the Pharisees were physically blind, they'd be sinless? Well, that's what He says. If you were blind, you'd have no sin. No, He's talking about a specific sin that's characterized by the Pharisees. That sin was rejecting Christ. In the upper room discourse, Yeshua told His disciples, if I had not come and spoken to them they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. Is Yeshua saying that they, and he's talking about the world here, those in the world, would be sin-free if he hadn't spoken to them? No. Again, he's speaking of a specific sin of rejecting them. They wouldn't be been guilty of that sin of rejecting Christ if he hadn't come and spoken to them. Now, in each of these cases, the terms are absolute. Some specific sin is in view. The same principle must apply to the language of 1 John 3.9 and 5.18 where John is also speaking of a specific sin. What is that sin? It's the sin of rejecting Christ. That's the sin he's talking about here. Okay? Look at 1 John 4.2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. Alright, so if they don't confess Yeshua, they're not confessing to agree with another. It's to agree with God. You're saying the same thing God says about Yeshua. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Which you heard was coming and now is. It's Antichrist to deny Christ. Now many writers have supported the idea that the sin and the death is the sin of unbelief or rejection of Christ. A major theme in the Johannian writings all right, is this whole idea of rejecting. Does not sin, he says. Now, if we connect 3, nine and 5.18, we see that the impeccability of the Christian, by that I mean he doesn't sin, he's impeccable, who's ever born of God doesn't sin, is seen in terms of rejecting Christ. The sin of the death is the sin of unbelievers. Not believers. And this explains the statement that one who is born of God does not sin. If you're born of God, you don't reject Christ. Now, having that as an understanding, let's go back to the end of 516, which reads, There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray for that. Now, the language here doesn't forbid praying for someone. It's just like don't even bother, don't worry about it. Focus your prayers on believers, the idea here. All right. Now think about this. If the sin that leads to death was referring to physical death of a sinning believer, I think he certainly wants to pray for that believer. Pray for them. But, if the sin of death is referring to an unbeliever who's rejecting Christ, then he's saying, don't worry about praying for them. Why? Because Christ didn't pray for them. Okay? Look at John 17, 9. The high priestly prayer of Christ. He says, I am I'm praying for them. I'm not praying praying for the world now you take this and you run it back to john three sixteen. for god so loved the world i'm not praying for the world huh well if he loves him why isn't he praying for him well he uses world in about seven different ways in this text all right in john three sixteen, world means jew and gentile all different ethnic groups all different peoples god so loves different peoples not just jews here he's saying i'm not praying for the world i'm praying for the ungodly the christ rejecters when he prayed for his disciples, he specifically excluded the world from his prayer. With the his own refusal to pray for the world as a precedent, it makes perfect sense to understand the author of 1 John is discouraging his readers from pray for praying for their opponents who are of the world. They're Christ rejectors. You know, I'm not saying you should pray for them. I'm saying pray for believers. So I see that the sin that leads to death in 516 as referring to the Christological heresy of the opponents which has marked them as unbelievers and sealed their fate. Refusal to believe in Yeshua as the Christ, the Son of God, is the sin that leads to death. Okay? In 5.17 he says, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin that leads to death. Now, he restates here and reinforces the distinction made in 5.16 between sins that do and do not lead to death And having implied that sins committed by believers, sins not leading to death, may be prayed for and forgiven, I think he doesn't want us to leave the impression that sins are insignificant. Okay? He's saying, listen, all unrighteousness is sin. But there's one that leads to death. That's, okay, that's way worse, all right? In all this, let's remember John's point. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should be praying for him. We should be praying for believers who are falling into sin. Because when one believer is in sin, it hurts the community. Alright? And we are a community. We need to have that mentality. And that's why what the state is doing now with trying to keep believers out of meeting is a contradiction of the Scripture. We are to be together. That's what God wants. People of like faith to be together. Not virtual, together having communion with one another. Seeing how one another, asking one another how they are, praying for one another. Uplifting one another. People, we have a mighty resource here, and it's prayer. And we are to be praying for one another. Especially when we see someone lapsing into sin. Go to God. Start there. Pray for them. That's important. So I think this difficult text is not that difficult when you understand it's a specific sin. And like I said, I take 16 as dealing with two different things. One is the believer. He's going too far in his sin and he could die. And God said, pray for them. The other one is they're not believers. They've rejected Christ. He said, don't even worry about that. Okay? If they're not elect, they're not coming. You don't have to worry about praying for them. All right, Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at this text. Lord, it's not simple. (laughs) And I pray you'd give us the spirits of Bereans that people would not believe what I'm saying or reject what I'm saying, but they would study this out for themselves and see if these things are so. Lord, I thank you for the resources we have today at our fingertips. That we can study, we can dig, we can go to the original languages, we can understand so much. Just give us the desire to do the work. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. I thank you that we cannot, as believers, commit a sin that will lead to death. Our salvation is secure in you. Lord, we rejoice in that. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. Okay. Questions, comments? Now's your chance. Anthony? right and and here's the thing we do you know who's elect and who's not Spurgeon said if God would have painted a yellow stripe down their back I would lift their shirts up to see if I should pray for them or not but since we don't know I think you can pray for somebody you know but he and again this text the language the grammar of this text is not saying you cannot pray for them he's just like I'm not don't worry about that. Let's focus on believers is the idea here. So I'm not saying don't pray for unbelievers. We should pray for them. But the focus of the church is believers. Okay? Because if they're not elect, they're not coming. They're on the side of love. That's right. That's always where we want to err, on the side of love. And I'll tell you, you've <laughs> <laughs> we got people coming here all the time asking for things. You know, money, uh, can you pay my rent? I got kicked out. Can you do this? Can you do that? My car's broke down. Can you help? We always help people the first time. Okay? The first time. Because, like Dave said, we want to err on the side of love. I don't know. Did God send this person here? And then we do investigating. If they come back again and find out what's going on there. You know? We had a guy come here ah, three or four times, but it was always like, I, got, I, I need a tire for my car. I don't have any money. I need, you know, and 20 bucks. And so, yeah, okay, get him a new tire. He came several times for different things. And he come in one time. you remember me? I'm like, oh, yeah. What do you need this time? And he told me, you know, and I felt like he was a man struggling, you know, trying to keep his head above water. So, yeah, I wanted to help him. So I said, look, I, you know, what do you do? And he goes, I do siding and stuff. So I took him outside, and there's siding on the roof there. Will you fix that? He goes, yeah. I said, it's okay. I gave him $100. He was asking for 20 Here's Here's 100 bucks. Come by. Fix that. We're good. Never saw him again. Okay? So if he comes by here again... <laughs> And we had a lady who came in here and she was in the back crying during the service. And, and, you know, oh, I'm dying of cancer. And, you know, and I, oh, okay. Well, I went and paid for a motel, got her some food, got her stuff. You know, my boyfriend left me and I'm all alone. And, and then I went to the desk and talked to some people in there. Her boyfriend's back there with her, you know. It was, I don't know, a year later, maybe she came walking back in church and on a Tuesday night, I think it was a men's meeting. And she comes walking in I said, hey. She, and she goes, oh, hi. I said, I remember you. And she just kind of looked at me. And said, I said, how's your cancer going? You're looking pretty well there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But believers, you know, I hate to turn somebody away that really has a need when you don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of scam artists out there. But listen, again, I would much rather err on the side of love and help somebody who doesn't need than neglect somebody. Because this is a place to come for help. The church. Isn't that where people should come for help? Yeah. And we should help them. And a lot of times I'll ask them, well, what about your church? Aren't they helping you? Oh, I don't have one. Well, Maybe you ought to think about getting one. You know, because churches ought to help their own people. Anybody else? Questions? We done? Well, good, I thought we'd have a ton of questions on this. Okay, yeah, that's... When I don't get questions, I think it was either so clear nobody's got a question or so confusing nobody knows how to ask a question, okay? <laughs> I'm going to go with the first one. This. <laughs> okay. Sometimes, you know, a person knows, say like, if they think, just say they know they are struggling with five different things, and two or three of them, they kind of like stray from it totally and, and this, so the ones that they're still struggling with or whatever, you know, it's like, you know, try your best to conquer like you did the other two or three. So don't keep on doing it. But just do your best to try to correct yourself to, to make sure that you're trying to do that right. That's it. I think the thing is to try to be moving in the right direction. Okay. You know what sin is. You know, you know what you have struggled with. I always recommend people find some scripture that deal with that specific sin and memorize it. Say it over and over, and meditate on it. And the next time you know you go to do something, I will tell you, you know, God will use the scripture, but you can't use it if you don't know it. Okay, wouldn't that be nice? We don't even have to. We don't even have to work at learning the scripture. God will just bring it to our minds supernaturally. No, the Jews spend so much time memorizing the book, memorizing first twelve years of their life. That's all they do. Memorize the book. Christians are like memorize it. We don't even read it. That's why I push so much read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. You're not going to know it unless you read it. And once you read it, God can use it. I told you a time, when we had a, when we first moved here, the church we were at, I was pretty involved and something was going on and I was like, nobody talked to me about that. Not that they should have, but you know how pride is, you know, especially I was pretty young and I went to the phone, that's when phones hung on the wall. I don't know if you all remember that, you know, and you used to pick them up and you used to have to push buttons or turn dials, you know, and I started calling the preacher to give him what for, and as I was doing that, the Lord brought to my remembrance these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven an abomination, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, he that sows discord among the brethren. And I went, click. <laughs> okay, Lord. I don't this you know, it's just my pride anyway. Man, you know, but God can't use the scripture if we don't know the scripture. So we gotta know it. Okay? All right, Kath, come on down here and uh well, I'm going to read a scripture before we do this. I'm going to read a prayer. This is this is a prayer that I'd like y'all to join with me on. It's a prayer for the removal of the wicked. Father, we pray that all the willful workers of wickedness be removed from positions of power, prominence, and prestige. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Let the stillborn child who never sees the let them be like the stillborn child that never sees the sun. Open the eyes of those being deceived and place people who who stand for justice and righteousness in the high places of government and influence. We need to pray for God. Remove these evil, wicked, baby killers, child traffickers. We need to pray about it, people. If we believe prayer works, then let's get involved and do something about it. Stop complaining about everything and get on your knees and say, God... Make them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Amen. Come on down. Let's sing Heal Our Land.